knowledge capital is one thing, sustaining it is quite another. Mexico City has the powerful ammunition of human capital and the infrastructure to bring up a generation of scientists, innovators, and world changers. Key to this plan is a new education paradigm, one with a focus on teaching hard science from elementary school to universities and preventing the infamous brain drain syndrome. Up next, we explore science education in Mexico and look at some ways the country can become a research destination for scientists around the world. Welcome to part three of the 2008 Science and Innovation Week podcast series. We start from a decision. Mexico City possesses a basal platform of human resources that allows us to think of it as becoming Latin America's capital of a knowledge-based economy. That was Mexico City's mayor, Marcelo Abrard. The foundation of any knowledge capital is a thriving education system, one that works from the bottom up and one that can accommodate evolving technology, research demands, and demographic shifts. Alvin Toffler is an American writer and futurist and says there needs to be a major shift in the way we think about education. Here he describes challenges with the current system. What we have are education systems that were designed early in the industrialization process. The best example is, is the American history. In the 1800s, there was an enormous debate going on about whether or not there should be such a thing as public education. The rich people said yes. The poor people said, are you kidding? We need our kids to work in the fields, otherwise we starve. So no. Eventually, a third force came into play, and that was business. Business said, we're building factories, we're industrializing. We need kids who will grow up to work in these factories. And these kids off the farm aren't good at it. They're coming in, but they don't show up on time. Now, in the field, it doesn't matter if you don't show up on time. Some of will take your place for a few minutes. But you show up late on my assembly line, and you're costing me thousands of dollars. So you must be on time. And suddenly, time becomes really important. And clocks and watches begin to proliferate in the society. And so what you had gradually developed was schools that are effectively models of factories with rote and repetitive work with absolute carefully scheduled from this class to that class to the next class. And it's a wonderful system if what you want to produce are generations of factory workers. Alas, our factories are going away and something better is coming along. He's talking about a knowledge society, one where we need to work hard to keep up with changing social and technological norms. If I ask my kid, how you doing? I get back a one-line grunt, <laughs> you know. But if I ask him online, I get pages of information. So clearly, schools have to go into the business of preparing kids to use the new technologies. And that also means, I would suggest, 24-hour schools that are open for different people at different times. That they operate around the clock, that not all kids have the same schedules, that, the, that kids don't necessarily start school at the same age and march in step, that teachers are essentially retrained. And, and, and here's one for you. We have a society in which probably a huge number of people need education who are not getting it, and it's called the elderly, who are being frozen out of the society by the new technologies. So it may be that school is not just something 
that you do when you're five years old and then you just continue to do it. We need to just rethink the entire meaning. What do we mean by education in this incredible system that's emerging? Jerry Holton has an idea. He's the president of Polytechnic University in New York. At Polytech, Halton has helped to transform the way students and faculty at the university interact with, well, the real world. He explains the Polytech model. Create an incubator and a venture fund right around the university, maybe in the university, and then offer to faculty members that they can take one of their ideas, turn it into a company, maybe have someone else manage it and make some money. So academic salary tripled, quadrupled. So that's one way. Just sort of incentive is economic. The other is, I got an idea to change the world, and it's not going to change the world sitting in a paper. It's going to change the world when it turns into a product like a solar-powered flashlight that you can use in Africa to read by at night. Well, that needs an innovator and entrepreneurial person to make it happen. So that's with faculty. Two is you try to get students out of the classroom. Send them down into a company, put them out into the community, and find out what's a community need. Uh, so, like, we put students at Poly into Brooklyn and have them fix bodegas, have them talk to people about how they use their computers. Well, they come back, not rocket science, but they come back caring about how they use technology. The rest then is going to happen naturally. Polytech has had a lot of success with this model, and Halton says he thinks a similar idea could work in Mexican universities. I think that definitely are American universities trying to do this, but I think in many ways Mexican universities want to do what Mexico needs and be careful they don't duplicate what America needs, because they're different. In some ways the opportunity is greater in Mexico because there's a, a, the domestic economy greatly in need of new things, there's a greater amount of poverty, so there's an opportunity to do things for the poor that really in America aren't on the table as opportunities because people have a basic standard of living. Modifying post-secondary systems is one thing. Getting students interested in science so they'll go to post-secondary institutions is another. Harry Croto won the 1996 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. He's a staunch supporter of science education, so much so that he started an online teaching database for science teachers and students. The internet, he says, has totally revolutionized science outreach. How can the internet best be harnessed for science outreach? What's the most efficient way? Which, what's the most cost-effective way? And in particular, what's the best way of helping teachers to teach science better? Gradually became clear that the dynamics was very interesting in the sense that YouTube enabled young people to make films, video programs, very inexpensively. Wikipedia showed that individuals could actually put their life's experience on the web. So what we did and set up is Geoset. The iconic image of the teacher is the, the biology teacher having to teach some 12 and 13 year olds physics next term and there's no physics teacher around and they didn't do any physics really at school. So the idea is here, well we can actually work together with all the other people in the world to create a cache of downloadable physics material for nine-year-olds. But it's not just for nine-year-olds. Croto's site, though it's just kicking off, has material for students from kindergarten to undergraduate levels. Creating support systems for teachers so they can feel confident and excited about the science they're teaching is key, says Croto. Once you've got a generation of students interested in science, however, a new problem arises how to prevent a massive brain drain of dynamic graduate students and researchers from leaving the country for other opportunities. 
Cynthia Severe is in the undergraduate genomic science program at UNAM, headed by Rafael Palacios. At the conference in September, she encouraged attendees to make it worth her and her fellow students' while to return to Mexico after they've got their degrees. Her story is a unique one. I met Dr. Palacios in one of his seminars at school. I was 18 years old when I first heard one of his seminars and he collapsed one of my older concepts in life, which is that genomes are not immutable structures. They change, they rearrange themselves, and since that moment I knew I had to be in his lab. So that same day I went to ask for an interview with him, and it's been four years since that. It's really interesting because when we gather together at the labs or at school, what we talk about is, where are you going to do your graduate education, whatever? And we said, well, I want to go to this place, this other place. And then we ask ourselves, and what are we going to do afterwards? And most of us decided to come back to Mexico. It wasn't an idea that came out in that same moment. It seemed like a really old idea or philosophy inside all of our minds. So most of us said, well, I want to come back. But the problem is that when we come back, where are we going to work? And there are many good places to work in here. What we have to do is to go outside and learn what we can to implement that knowledge here. And so with my peers, with, with younger partners, it is the same philosophy. We want to come back. And I think that's, that's a really good point to start with because we as, as students, as future researchers, are stopping the brain drain. It may occur in many other specific areas of knowledge, like many politics or arts, and we don't want to do that. Palacios says the sentiment Severi is talking about is something that needs to be taken seriously and cashed in on. The important thing is that we will have the opportunity to be leaders, in this case in genomic sciences. The talent will be there, the training will be there, the wish will be there, the expectatives will be there. The other that is needed is just things that money can buy. So if Mexico does not utilize this opportunity, it will be really a, something like a tragedy. Up next, we wrap up the conference with a look at some policies that can make innovations in health, green science, and education a reality. And hear about next steps from the mayor of Mexico City.